It's amazing to see the lengths that collectors will go through if they have the chance to complete their collection. The financial burdens and the distances they're willing to travel, it's really something incredible to watch. And I might have tendencies that lead me to collect things, possibly. And I may have had some really strange collections over the extent of my lifetime that we don't need to talk about now. But I also like to not feel totally crazy. And so I watch a lot of documentaries and TV shows about people who also have collections and have these collection tendencies so that I can feel a little more normal And it doesn't take long to watch some of those things to either feel more crazy or less. I'm not sure which one. But you see a lot of really unique collections that people take on. Maybe the strangest that I've ever seen was about this man, and he collected airsick bags from planes. Not used. (laughs) So I think that's a very important distinction there. So he wasn't just going through the garbage at, at Delta and finding bags, but he would collect unused sick bags from airplanes. And this guy, I don't know, I don't remember how it started, but he had these specially made frames that were just the right size for these little bags. And his walls all over his house, floor to ceiling, were lined with these framed air sick bags. And what was even more amazing that Then this one guy collecting these bags, as during part of the show, he sits down on his computer and he logs into a forum with other people who also collect (laughs) sick bags. And they trade, and they go back and forth with all these things. And so I didn't even know these were things that you could find. I just, I I don't, I haven't ever flown, so it's not a thing that I'm really familiar with anyway, but I didn't know that there was just ways to find these unused bags, but he had them from all different airlines and all different languages, all through basically the history of flight. And some of them, because again, all you need is five or six people collecting something for the value to start to rise. Some of these bags, he paid hundreds and even thousands of dollars just because he had this desire for completion. And it doesn't always even have to be something physical, right? Remember, what was it about two or three years ago? You had basically anyone from the age of 12 to, we'll call it 35, walking around parks and churches and roads holding their phones trying to catch Pokemon, which, surprise, surprise, do not actually exist. And yet, people were going through all kinds of links to find these little Pokemon out in the wild that are actually just in your phone and digital and not real. And so, when we have this desire for completion, we're willing to do a lot of things to obtain that feeling of finally putting it all together. If only we all had that same desire all the time when it comes to our religious devotion to Christ. You see, there's a temptation for us to be spiritual specialists when it comes to our Christianity, when it comes to our religion. And so we have things, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, churches have some things they prioritize, and all of us individually have things that we feel like maybe we're really good at. And so I'm the person who's really good at prayer, or I'm the person that's really good at serving, or I'm the person that's really good at singing, or I'm the person that's really good at studying theology. And yes, we all have different spiritual gifts, and those are important to emphasize and celebrate, but we can never resign ourselves to being specialists. Because today we're going to see James take out the magnifier and hold it over our lives and reveal a pretty hard truth to us all. When it comes to our faith, when it comes to our religion, none of us 
are there yet. It doesn't matter how good we are at any one particular avenue or aspect of our faith and of our walk with Christ, we all have room to grow. And we're going to see James teach us how to be more truly and more completely religious, again, in the the sense of how the New Testament calls us to be religious and how we can maintain a more Christ-like religion that's complete, that's not just based on the things that we do and the actions and going through the motions, but to have a religion that is confessional and humble and above all things merciful. So that what's inside matches what's outside. And so that we are constantly pursuing that deeper part of our walk with Christ and the religious activity that he's called us to partake in. And so we're going to be in James chapter 2, verses 17, or verse, excuse me, verse 7 through 13 this morning. Picking up at verse 7, or actually let's pick up at verse 8. If you are really fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are being judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father, we do thank you for your word. And God, today we thank you for your mercy. And as we see James highlight the parts of our lives that might not be where they should be, we are so thankful that as we grow and as we mature, that you are still gracious and faithful. When we mess up, when we fall short, you are still there, you are still good, and you still love us with a grace that is unending. And so, Father, help us to recognize that grace and that mercy that you give us, and please teach us to also give that to others to be people who carry with us a religion that isn't simply going through the motions, but something that is inspired by a salvation that comes by grace alone through faith. And that when we work out our faith, when we practice our faith out in the world, that it would be done not simply out of an act of piety or obligation, but that we would constantly be moving in your rhythms, living with humility and mercy in all we do. And so, God, we just begin this morning by confessing that we aren't there yet, and you know that. But, God, give us a passion to continue pursuing that deeper, more complete faith, that deeper, more complete religion that you've called us to, a religion that hears the word and does it, that loves our neighbor as ourself with no partiality or favoritism or bias or discrimination, and with a faith in a religion that is, is confessional, humble and merciful. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing we're going to look at this morning is the need for our religion to be confessional. That we should have a confessional religion. And if you haven't been here over the past few weeks, we're doing this short 
mini-series through a section of the book of James talking about what it looks like to be truly religious as the Bible calls us to be. Because there's certainly a wide range of understandings of what it means to be religious, but when it comes to Christianity and our faith, there's only one definition, and that can only come from God. And James is a book that teaches us what it looks like to be practically religious as a follower of Christ. And when we talk about this confessional religion, again, it brings up this story that we, I mentioned last week about the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And he wants to know what it takes to have eternal life, what it takes to come into the kingdom of God. And, you know, Jesus says, well, you can start by keeping the law and the prophets. And he says, check, I got it. And this rich young ruler comes to Jesus thinking that he has all of his boxes checked. That he's lived a life of very practical religiosity. That he's followed all the rules. That he's done all the right things. That he's checked all the right boxes. And so he comes to Jesus with his checklist and he says, look, I've done it all. And Jesus says, good job, man. So just sell all your stuff. Give it to the poor and come follow me. And he couldn't. Because there was still something there that was missing. Something there that he was lacking. And I think when it comes to Christianity and following Christ, that there's a little bit of the rich young ruler in all of us. It's easy for the ritual and repetition of religion to become a series of boxes that we can check. And no matter how irreligious we try to make our churches, because that's a thing that sometimes we try to do, we try to pretend that this isn't, in fact, religion. But the things that we do week after week, coming to church and giving to the offering and singing songs and praying prayers and reading the Bible, all of these things are repetitious religious acts that we put in as a part of our lives. And when those things become that repetitious, we start to feel like, okay, I've checked off church for the week. I've checked off reading my Bible for today. I've checked off my service. I've checked off all these things. And so we can come to God and say, look at all the things that we've done. Do I get my gold star now? Have I, have I reached all the points? Is my trophy case filled with all the religious things that I've done? God, aren't you so proud of me? And it's with that mentality, that's where James starts in verse 8 here, where he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. James is saying, okay, good, you've checked that box. You can stand in front of me and say that you love your neighbor as yourself, and that's a big one, right? That's what Jesus says is the second greatest commandment. And so James says, if you say that you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing a good job. But hold on. We have to remember that James is painting this picture of a very holistic nature of this religious devotion that we should have to Christ. That what we do in our worship and and by expressing and practicing our faith requires everything. It requires every aspect of who we are from the inside out. And we can look at that passage and we can think, you know, maybe someone fulfilling the royal law, that seems like a really important thing to do, by loving their neighbors self would get a higher commendation than, you're doing a good job. You're, you're, You're doing well. It seems like there would be a little more pomp and circumstance with that. But notice what James says here. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, as we talked about last week, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James says, so you're loving your neighbor, huh? You can tell me that you're loving your neighbor, but are you showing partiality? 
Are you doing what I, what he said in the passage we looked at last week of looking at one person and seeing more value in that person than in somebody else because of what they wear or what they look like or who they are or what they have? Because if you are, if you are showing partiality in your life, then I've got bad news for you. You're not actually loving your neighbor as yourself. In the ESV study Bible, The note for this verse says that favoritism and discrimination are violations of the kingdom law of love. And so James is is checking the practicing of our religion. Saying you might think that you're doing a job. You might say that you're loving your neighbor. But if there is bias and discrimination in your life, then you're not actually living out that commandment at all. And then he continues to get even deeper in verse 10 by saying, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. This is a much higher standard of religion than, Did you go to church this morning? Or did you have some personal Bible study? Did you have your quiet time? Or did you pay for the person behind you in Starbucks' drink today? This is a much deeper, more profound thing that James is calling us to. And then he gets even deeper in verse 11 by saying, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, and you become a transgressor of the law. But maybe you can check those boxes, right? Maybe you can say, well, not a murderer, haven't committed adultery, so according to James, I must be good. But then, unfortunately, what we have to do is also look at Christ. Because the Sermon on the Mount has a very heavy influence on James's teaching. And remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that you've heard it said that you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that if you look at someone with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. And he says, you also heard it says that you shouldn't commit murder, but I say to you that if you hate your brothers and sisters in your heart, then you're guilty of murder. And so now if we put James together with Jesus, we see that there is an incredibly high standard for what it means to follow Christ. Basically what James is saying here is that it doesn't matter how many boxes that we check, that there is probably some box in each and every one of our life, whether it's something that we are doing that is sinful and that that is displeasing to God, or something that we're not doing that we should be doing that would please God, and that box is still yet to be checked. And so this is a pretty weighty religion. Now I think it's important to take a breath and take a grace break really quickly here. Because it is important to remember that James is speaking to Christians. And so James is not telling people how to become Christians. James isn't saying that you have to check all these boxes and make sure all these things are just right so that you can then become a Christian. Because James knows, just like Paul knows, just like Jesus would teach, that salvation through Jesus comes by grace through faith. That it's a free gift that we don't have to do anything to earn it or anything to obtain it. That God gives it to us freely through what Christ has done for us. What James is talking about is how we practice our faith, how we work out our salvation, to use the language of Paul, after we have received it. And so please don't hear any of this as you have to do all these things to be a Christian or you have to do all of these things to stay a Christian because we know with the whole testimony of Scripture that salvation is by grace through faith and that's all. But James is reminding us here that the Christian life even though it is good and abundant and joyful, is never best lived or practiced on the easiest road. You see, grace does give us the option for easy religion. 
That's why Paul warns us about that temptation in, in Romans. Because we're saved by grace and that because God sustains that salvation and keeps that salvation for us, it's very easy to say, you know what, I'm saved by grace, so I'm going to sit back and not worry about anything and not do anything at all. But while grace gives us the option for easy religion, our faith and our love for Christ and the example that Jesus set for us should compel us to something more, something deeper, and something that is pure and undefiled. And so we see here that true religion then must begin with confession. To begin with the awareness of saying, you know what, I'm not there yet. Maybe I'm getting closer Maybe the older I am and the longer I live and the more that I live for Christ, I will become more and more like Christ. But even Paul recognized that the more boxes he checked, the more were still there that needed to be. And so the Christian religion begins with this knowledge that I don't have what it takes, and so Christ has to do this for me. And there is always room for growth and always room for improvement. This is why week after week, our confession of sin has those we have not passages in it. Because one of the things that's amazing about the confession of sin and why we do the same one every week is that all of those things are true about all of us some of the time. No matter who we are and no matter where we come from, all of us at some point in time don't do a very good job of loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of us at some time don't do a good job of loving our neighbors as ourselves. Or using all that we have to serve and honor and glorify Christ. All of us at times can be selfish. All of us at times can be harsh. All of us at times sin and fall short of the glory of God. And so that's why week after week we have this reminder that I am not where I'm supposed to be. And that on one hand is okay because I've been saved by the grace and mercy of God. That's why we have that assurance of pardon. So on the other side of our confession we're reminded that even though we don't have enough that Christ is enough. And so at one point, it's a, a helpful comfort to us to confess and recognize that we don't have it all together, but Christ does it for us. But that confession should also be a kickstarter every single week to remind us that we have more to work on and we have further to go. You see, true religion, according to what Scripture teaches us, is a tireless and relentless pursuit of Christ of being conformed to his image and of never being complacent or satisfied, but always seeking out that completion. To keep doing what Paul tells us to do, keep moving forward, knowing that even though we haven't taken hold of our goal, that we keep pressing towards us, knowing that one day Christ will bring us to completion. And so a true Christ-honoring religion begins with the confession that we're just not there yet and that it's okay because of grace, but we still have work to do because our faith and our trust in Christ compels us. The next thing we see is that we should have a humble religion, a religion that is practiced and worked out in humility. When Jesus tells the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee praying to God in the synagogue, the Pharisee, of course, is is pious and arrogant, And praying basically a prayer of thanks that God has made him this good and upright and religious person. And if you know the story, the the tax collector, this outwardly sinful person, is in the background on his face praying that God would just give him mercy. And I imagine, and I think this is the reason why Jesus told this story, most people would see the Pharisee as religion. Not just as a religious person, but as the expression of religiousness of religion itself 
that religion is pious because the Pharisees were. I think sometimes we just look at them in the completely negative sense because of the conflict they had with Jesus. But these were people who really did work out their faith. They kept the rules. They taught in the synagogues. They were the people that had all the knowledge and all the information and they put it to work. But also we see a lot of times that was mixed with arrogance and piety and judgment and discrimination. I think if you would ask most people, that would be their idea of what religion in a bubble looks like. But Jesus and James tell us to see religion in a much more unlikely place. Embodied by that tax collector recognizing his sinfulness and on his face in humility asking for God's mercy. In verse 11 and 12, James says again, For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. And that verse helps us to understand that in this passage, James isn't questioning anyone's salvation or their standing with God for being lawbreakers. He's making us aware of the fact that all of us have sinned, that all of us have transgressed, that all of us have broken God's law, And yet, we're able to stand in God's presence. But James is questioning our conduct, if you're a follower of Christ. How you speak, how you act, and the pride that motivates all of those things. See, James is telling us that all of these negative things are true about us. That just like Paul said, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's something that we still do continually, even after we trust in Christ. That we still fall, we still mess up, we still come up short. And yet, because of Jesus, who keeps the law for us, because of Jesus, who offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf, we are still able to stand in the presence of God and come boldly before the throne of grace, knowing that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even when we fall, even when we mess up, because God still loves us because he sees us through the blood of Christ, because he sees us through the righteousness of Jesus. And knowledge like that cannot leave us unchanged. We call it the gospel or good news because that's exactly what that is. And when we receive good news and we hear good news, no matter how many times we hear good news, it should change us from the inside out. And because of the gospel, we should act humbly like people who are living under the law of liberty. James says we're going to be judged not under a law of condemnation or judgment, but that we are judged under a law of liberty and freedom. That Christ has set us free and by grace we have been saved. And because of that, it should radically change how we live. And this is yet another place where we find that simply having good theology or church attendance isn't enough. Those are good things, but on their own, those are things that can turn to a source of pride. If you have all the answers, I've told you guys before, I actually have Sunday school trophies, literally actual physical trophies that I was given in Sunday school because I memorized a bunch of verses. And that is a really bad thing to do for someone who is very competitive and has a tendency for their ego to inflate, to mix the beauty of scripture with my narcissism. But it happened and my little hands were around that trophy and I still have them because I'm still a narcissist. And so... 
when we mix these things up, if we have all the answers or we can check all those boxes or we do all the right things, if that is not coming out of an attitude of humility, it's going to start coming out of an attitude of pride. But the gospel and the truth that God loves us even in the midst of our brokenness and even in the midst of our sin is a truth that shatters pride. If you were in a community group last semester, we looked through the book of Ephesians, and Paul spends the whole time just talking about the beauty of grace. He says, don't you know that you have been saved by grace, not by works, so that nobody can boast? The church is not a place where we can come in and say, look at all these things I've done and look at all these trophies I've earned. The church is a place where we come in and we say, I have nothing to offer, and yet God still loves me, and that is really good news. And so instead of standing at the front like the Pharisee declaring all of our good intentions, we humble ourselves like the tax collector in the background, praying for the mercy of God and being thankful for his grace. Not only should salvation by grace shake the fruit of pride from our tree, but when we think about the means through which that salvation was given to us, it should uproot the entire plant. Because my goodness, what room for arrogance is there when our God was willing to humble himself to the point of death to bring salvation to us? How can I stand prideful about the things that I've accomplished when the God who spoke the universe into being, when the Christ who all things were created through and by and for, when he was willing to give up everything, to empty himself, become nothing, be a servant in the world that he created and then offer himself through a humiliating and horrifying death to bring about my salvation. How could I ever stand and say, God, look at all of these trophies. We stand guiltless if we have trusted in Christ. Guiltless, without shame or blemish or need to hide from God. We stand guiltless in the presence of a God who gave everything for us. And humility in our religious practice is the only response that we can have. Whether we sing or pray or read or study with the depth of our knowledge of the goodness of God, whether we come to church and go out and serve and and love other people, it has to be done and motivated in humility. And so James is telling us that because of the gospel, we should speak and act and practice our faith like we're being judged under the law of liberty. Like we stand in God's presence covered by his grace practicing our religion in a confessional way with humility, with meekness, with grace, and with mercy. Which leads us into the last thing that James teaches here is that we should have a merciful religion. That our religious practice should be filled with mercy and compassion. Nobody wants to be judged or measured unfairly. We trust that when we go to the grocery store and you hang your bananas on the scale that you don't have a separate scale from somebody else and that your scale reads a little heavier and somebody else's reads a little lighter. We want to make sure that when we buy our bananas that all of our bananas are measured the same way. I'm sorry I'm talking a lot about bananas, but I've been eating a lot of bananas lately, a lot, to the point where I can still have an idea of 
how much they're all going for and where the bananas are the cheapest. And I think right now, Trader Joe's is not the cheapest because we went there the other day and they're a little more expensive. And you paid for them by banana, which was weird, and not by the pound, which would completely throw off this entire analogy. But I just want to make sure that when I buy bananas that I'm not paying more for bananas than somebody else's because my scale is a little weird. In fact, what would be nice is if while I'm buying my bananas because I love them so much and I want to eat a lot of them, that maybe somebody in the store would say, you know what? And then put their finger under the scale and push it up a little bit, right? And just give a little help because, you know, they want me to eat cheaper bananas. Nobody wants to be measured unfairly. And really what we would like, most of us, I think, is to be judged a little less harshly because we feel the weight of judgment all the time. And we feel how people are measuring us and how we're measured at work and how we're measured at school and how we're measured at home. We just feel that burden all the time. And to be measured generously gives us room to breathe. The New Testament is constantly telling us to think of other people by thinking about ourselves. Think about it. When Jesus says that the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he says that the second greatest commandment is that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. He teaches us to think of other people by thinking ourselves. How do you love yourself? Do you love yourself? You should love yourself because you're a creation of God and God loves you and cares for you and and gave Christ for you. And so love your neighbor the same way that you love yourself. And what we call the golden rule, what is it that Jesus says? Do unto others as you want them to do to you. How do you want to be treated? You want to be treated fairly. You want to be treated kindly. You want to be treated with love and grace. And if that's how you want to be treated, then that's how you should treat other people. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray that God would forgive us as we have also forgiven other people. How do you want to be forgiven? You want to be forgiven totally and completely and as many times as you fall. And so in the same way, that's how you should forgive others. And now James has this verse for us. Where he says, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. If you want people to deal mercifully with you, if you want God to deal mercifully with you, Deal mercifully with others. And again, because I feel like this disclaimer cannot be said enough this morning, this is not a warning about losing grace, about losing salvation, but it is a check to the genuineness of our faith. Because as we've seen, James is calling us to a complete religion from the inside out. Very early on, we saw that James tells us the one who hears the word of God should do the word of God. We've seen that the one who loves their neighbor as their self should also show no partiality and should not look at anyone with favoritism. We see that someone who has been, forgive, has been forgiven much should be forgiven much all the time. And now we see that someone who has been judged mercifully should also judge mercifully. And I think it might be helpful for us to allow this verse to loom over our heads a little bit to remind us how crucial it is for God's people to deal mercifully with those who are around us and to practice our religion soaked in the mercy of God because the mercy of God is great. Adam mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but the mercies of God's lamentations tells us are new every single morning. 
No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, when you trust in Christ every single morning, when you wake up, his mercies are new. His grace is sufficient and your joy can be complete. And that's why there's such triumph as that, that verse kind of hangs a little weighty over our heads. The last half of that should be just a burst of light through the shadows because James tells us that mercy triumphs over judgment. And that starts with God. Because the Bible tells us over and over again that because of our sin that we should have received God's wrath. That we should receive God's judgment because we separate ourselves from him by our sin. And yet because of Christ, the mercy of God triumphs over the judgment of God. And then no matter how many times I fall, no matter how many times I mess up, no matter how many times I sin, no matter how many times I should be earning the judgment of God and the wrath of God, he just continually pours out his mercy on me. Mercy triumphs when I sin, and mercy triumphs even when at times I fail to show mercy to others. The mercy of God triumphs over the judgment of God in my life because of what Christ has done for me. And as we've seen, the religion that God is teaching us to partake in, because it comes from God, should reflect the character and the nature of God. And because God is merciful, we don't have a true and complete religion if our religion is in fact not merciful. So because of that, we have the responsibility to let mercy triumph over judgment as we live out our true religion. We do this by loving our neighbors as ourselves and showing no priority or favoritism. We do this by forgiving as Christ has forgiven us. We do this by being humble in the things that we do on a daily basis as we practice our faith out. We do this by not looking down at other people because of our piety, but looking up at other people because we're serving in humble gratitude, serving Christ first and then our neighbors second as we love them in the same way that we want to be loved, as we treat them in the way that we We want to be treated. And so true religion as Christ has called us to live and as James is teaching us to practice is a religion that is loving and forgiving, a religion that is confessional, confessing our weaknesses before God, acted out humbly, and in all things, seeing mercy triumph over judgment in our lives as the mercy of God triumphs over the judgment in our lives that we rightly earned. And so as we practice our faith and do the things that we should be doing, because again, Christianity is in fact a religion. And the religious things that we do are good and beneficial for us, that we're commanded to take communion as we're going to do next week. We're commanded when we trust in Christ to go through the waters of baptism. Those are religious acts and religious rituals. We're commanded to pray and to read our Bibles and to do these confessions and to sing songs together and to hear the word of God preached. All of these things that we do repetitiously and ritually are incredibly important in helping us grow in Christ. But they're not complete if they're not done out of a heart that is confessional and humble and merciful. And so as we seek to grow in our faith and in our religion and in the practicing of both of those things, let's do so in the most complete way we possibly can. Never being satisfied with the actions alone, but being certain that our hearts and our minds and our spirits are in line with what we're called to do by confessing that we're not there yet, by being humble in the way that we practice and in the way that we think of ourselves and being merciful in the way 
that we deal with others.